0: It is a joy to be with you this morning and to be able to have the privilege to consider the glories of God's word. You know, frequently from this pulpit and from Pastor Tom, you hear words such as sovereignty or depravity or depraved, election, chosen, called, perseverance, ransom, redemption, reconciliation, and many other words. And every single one of these theological concepts has to do with salvation. Fundamentally, the presupposition and the premise that salvation is of the Lord. The psalmist in Psalm 3.8 said, salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah and Jonah chapter two, verse nine writes, salvation is from the Lord this week and next week, I want us to consider this glorious statement, salvation is of the Lord. Now, oftentimes the doctrines of grace, which we will be covering, which encapsulate this grand statement, salvation is of the Lord, are referred to as the five points of Calvinism or summed up in that acronym TULIP. But before we begin this study of each of these doctrines, I want to provide you with the historical foundation because contrary to popular opinion of many anti-Calvinistic theologians, the five points of Calvinism, the doctrines of grace did not originate in the 16th century with John Calvin. Rather after the life and ministry of John Calvin, there arose a man within the ranks of the Dutch reformed church named Jacob Arminius. Arminius contended with the reformed teaching of the Dutch reformed church and the teachings of John Calvin, asserting and arguing for the free will of man and salvation. And after Arminius' death in 1609, his followers gathered together, convened together to publish a document titled The Remonstrance, which was a sort of theological manifesto of the Arminians. The Remonstrance detailed the five points of departure of the Arminians from the Dutch Reformed Church and the teaching of John Calvin. In the year 1618, eight years after the publication of that document, the Remonstrance, several Reformed ministers and theologians gathered together to hammer out upon the anvil of the scriptures, the biblical teaching which the Dutch Reformed Church sought to upheld and uphold. This gathering became known as the Synod of Dort, which convened from 1618 to May of 1619. And the outcome of that Synod was that they published a response to each of the five points of the Remonstrance, which is the origin and it's the source of what we know as the five points of Calvinism. This week and next week, I want us to consider each of these doctrines, each of these five pillars. Now, just a brief disclaimer, before we embark upon this study, this is merely gonna be a 30,000 feet flyover. No means will this be exhaustive or comprehensive as hundreds of thousands of pages of material and literature has been penned concerning these doctrines. Also, before we begin this study, I want to provide some primary objectives, some purposes of this study. The first one that I would give you that is as a result of studying the doctrines of grace, that you would grow in the grace and knowledge of God, our savior, just as 2 Peter 3.18 describes for us. Secondly, as a result of studying the doctrines of grace, that you would be stimulated to ascribe to God, greater glory for his saving work. And thirdly, as a result of studying these glorious doctrines, the doctrines of grace, that you would be humbled by salvation, accomplished by God, our savior. Now the overarching theme that we'll be returning to over and over again over these next two weeks can be encapsulated in this statement. The doctrines of grace are biblically taught and historically affirmed truths that serve the purpose of exalting the sovereign glory of our great God and humbling sinners, whose only boast is in the Lord. Let me rewind that statement. The doctrines of grace are biblically taught and historically affirmed truths that serve the purpose of exalting the greater sovereign glory of our God and humbling sinners. I want us to study the five pillars of the doctrines of grace so that these objectives would be manifested and evident in your life. As the prayer in the valley of vision, the Puritan collection of devotional says, so that we would be humbled as sinners and that God would be exalted. The five pillars of the doctrine of grace are there on the slides. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. And this morning, we will have the privilege of studying the first two, total depravity and unconditional election. With that in mind, let us begin by looking at the first pillar of the doctrines of grace, which is total depravity. As we begin to study these pillars of the doctrines of grace, I want to analyze them each under four different headings. The first heading that I want us to observe is a summary definition of total depravity. Before we get into the weeds of our study, it is important that we have an understanding, an overall general idea of what it is that we're actually studying. Louis Burkhoff in his excellent systematic theology defines total depravity as the doctrine which asserts mankind is inherently corrupt and that this inherent corruption extends to every part of man's nature to all of his faculties and powers of both body and soul, and that there is no spiritual good in the sinner, but only perversion. Likewise, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith affirms this definition, stating that as a result of original sin, as a result of the fall of Adam in the garden, all became dead and completely defiled in the capabilities and parts of soul and body. Now there is a bunch to unpack from these definitions, but I do wanna provide for you a few highlights that are important as we begin to study through the doctrine of total depravity. First, I want you to notice that total depravity is inerrant. That is, it is the natural disposition, the natural lot of all mankind in the lineage of Adam. Mankind, including yourself and myself, are completely inherently by nature corrupt and depraved. A second feature that I want you to observe is that total depravity is comprehensive in its scope. That is to say that it affects all faculties of man, including his mind and his thoughts, including his heart and desires, including his his will, his volition, and his choices. Now, a final observation that I would present to you from this summary definition is that total depravity makes the sinner utterly reprehensible in the sight of God. That is to say, that there is nothing of spiritual value, nothing of inert goodness in the sinner that could warrant or merit the divine smile of God. There's no spiritual good in the sinner to incline the favor of the Lord. Now, with that general understanding of a definition of total depravity, I want us to turn to a second heading, which is the biblical evidence of total depravity. Now, I will emphasize this over and over and over again as we come to each of these theological doctrines and any theological proposition that you may encounter or study But the most important question that you have to ask is what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Does the Bible explicitly affirm? Does the Bible explicitly teach these truths? That is the most important consideration in our entire study. In fact, the Greek word "canon," which is used in Galatians 6.16 to describe the canon of scripture, is a transliteration of the Hebrew word that means measuring read. The scriptures are our measuring read, our measuring stick, our absolute authority for all of our life and practice. Spurgeon says it best saying that the doctrine which is called Calvinism did not spring from Calvin. We believe that it sprang from the greater founder of all truth. That's so true. Now, with that statement in mind, let us consider what the scriptures have to teach concerning this doctrine. As we consider the biblical evidence of total depravity, I want us to first look at the Old Testament evidence of total depravity. So turn with me, if you would, in your copy of God's word to the first book in the Bible in Genesis chapter six. Genesis chapter six, shortly after the fall of mankind into sin, in Genesis three, shortly after the first murder recorded in the Bible in Genesis four, we come to Genesis chapter six and we read in verse five. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In verse five, that word great is the Hebrew word that means numerous, or rich in, it's the same word that is used by God to describe himself in Exodus 34, six. When he proclaims the glory of his name, when he says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and truth. You see, while God abounds, is rich in, numerous, and abundant in steadfast love and truth, on the opposite end of the spectrum as detailed here in Genesis chapter six. The sinner is abounding in, is rich in wickedness. Notice in verse five also that small adjective, every. Moses writes that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Not just some of them, not just the majority of them, but every single thought of his heart, was only evil continually. Well, if you miss that in the first half of the verse, Moses doubles down by writing in the second half that it was only evil continually. Continually is the translation of a Hebrew idiom that is literally translated all the day. At other points in the scriptures, it's translated as forever or always. That is to say that every intent of the thoughts of mankind is always continually with unending duration, evil in his natural state. I also want you to observe how Moses under the inspiration of the spirit includes both the mind and the heart in this verse. Back to our summary definition, all faculties of man are corrupted, are impacted, are affected by the fall, are depraved. Here we see the mind and the thoughts, the, the heart and the desires of mankind are corrupt. Now, if you read this verse and you know what comes right after this verse, the global Noahic flood, you might be tempted to say, well, that was just the state of mankind before the flood. Maybe after the flood, things changed. Maybe mankind learned their lesson." two chapters later in Genesis eight twenty one, after the flood, after God's remarkable deliverance of Noah, we read in verse 21 of chapter eight, the Lord's response. He smells the sacrifice that Noah offered. And he says, I will never again curse the ground on account of man for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Not only does the law teach the total depravity of mankind, but also the wisdom literature teaches the total depravity of mankind. Job chapter 15, verses 14 through 16 says, what is man that he should be pure or he who is born of a woman that he should be righteous? Behold, he that is God puts no trust in his holy ones and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is detestable and corrupt, man who drinks down iniquity like water. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. You're familiar with the context. This is David's great penitential psalm after his egregious sin with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah the Hittite, her husband. And as he's confessing his sin, as he is repenting, we see in verse five, this statement. David writes in verse five, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin, my mother conceived me. In this verse, David is not saying that in his conception, his mother sinned in an unlawful manner, such as through fornication. Rather, David is saying that from the point of his conception, the earliest part of his existence, that he was completely sinful, completely iniquitous. The psalmist in Psalm 58, three affirms this same truth saying the wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. Solomon in Ecclesiastes writes in verse, uh, chapter seven, verse 20. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. So the law teaches total depravity. The wisdom literature of the Old Testament teaches total depravity. What about about the uh, prophets of Israel? Well, they also teach the doctrine of total depravity. Isaiah 64, six, a verse undoubtedly you are familiar with. Isaiah writes, for all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like filthy garment and all of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Think back to that summary definition of total depravity. You see, this verse demonstrates that there is no spiritual good, nothing of merit in the sinner that would warrant, that would merit the divine approval of God. In fact, this verse affirms that even our most righteous deeds, the most good deeds, outwardly speaking, are like mere used minstrel rags before the omniscient gaze of almighty God. What about the other prophets? Turn to Jeremiah The prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 17. He writes in verse nine, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah here describes the the fallen heart of mankind that is composed of his entire being of his volition of his cognition, of his emotions as being desperately sick. The NIV best translates this word as incurable. The word literally means incurable. And that is to say that there is no human generated prescription. There is no human generated means or remedy that can bring healing and restoration for the heart is comprehensively, completely, totally wicked. One commentator states concerning this verse this. He says, the human heart has the unlimited capacity for wickedness and deceit so that human resources are incapable of dealing with it. The only remedy is a radical change, nothing less than the rebirth, end quote. So it's obvious from this 30,000 foot flyover view of the Old Testament that the Old Testament in every single part and every single distinction affirms the reality of total depravity. Well, let's turn the page to the New Testament and examine the New Testament evidence of total depravity. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter eight. John chapter eight. Jesus is here speaking to the Jews. And he says, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, verse 31. And dropping down to verse 34, our Lord Jesus Christ affirms the reality of total depravity. In verse 34, we see these words. Jesus answered him, that is the Jewish audience that was there. Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The Greek word for commits there is poieto. It's the same word that Pastor Tom was describing last week to, in 1 John 3 to describe the continual practice, the habitual performance of a certain activity here, in this case, sin. A.W. Pink helpfully comments on this verse with this, and I love this. He says, being a sinner by nature, what were naturally constituted. He says, man is a sinner by practice and cannot be anything else. A corrupt tree cannot bring forth good fruit. A poisoned fountain cannot send forth sweet waters because the sinner has no spiritual nature within him because he is totally depraved and in complete bondage to sin because he does nothing for God's glory every action is polluted, every deed is unacceptable to the Holy One." So not only does our Lord here in John eight affirm the doctrine of total depravity, but his commissioned apostles, his emissaries affirm the same truth. Turn with me if you would, to consider the epistles in Romans chapter three. Romans chapter 3, you know the context of the beginning of Romans from Romans 1:18 all the way to Romans 3:20 is Paul's indictment of mankind. All mankind is under the just condemnation and wrath of God because he has rebelled against his maker and creator. And here in Romans chapter 3 verses 9 through 18, we have one of the most comprehensive arguments for total depravity as Paul strings together some eight consecutive Old Testament quotes to affirm this reality. You can see in verses 10 through 12, that Paul quotes from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, describing the fact that all of mankind, without distinction, both Jews and Greeks are totally wicked and sinful in need of the righteousness that comes through faith in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to enumerate after verse 12, this sinfulness and wickedness, the comprehensive effects of it, specifically focusing on the attitudes and the actions of mankind. Here in Romans three, there is no more definitive, no more clear affirmation, no more clear cut validation of the truth, of the reality, of the doctrine of total depravity. The matter is put to rest. The verdict is in, the case is closed. Mankind pleads guilty before the just tribunal of God. But not only here in Romans does Paul affirm this reality, but also in Romans chapter 8, verses seven through eight, we read the words, the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God for it does not subject itself to the law of God for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh, listen to this, cannot please God. Dunamai, don't have the capacity, don't have the ability, don't have the power to please God. Likewise in Ephesians in chapter four, Paul affirms this same reality discussing The Gentiles who are calloused in their heart and their mind is darkened, their understanding is darkened, held in bondage to sin. Friends, while this is just a brief survey of the biblical evidence, the doctrine of total depravity is unequivocally and emphatically declared and proclaimed throughout the entirety of the scriptures. From Genesis 1.1 to Revelation 22.21, we see this, unfold on almost every single page. Beloved, the reality is we must wrestle with this truth. Every single one of us in Adam's lineage, every single one of you this morning, myself included, are by nature corrupt, inept, and unable to please God we are in desperate need of salvation. And we are in desperate need of salvation that is accomplished by the Lord. Without this salvation being planned, accomplished and applied by God, we would be helpless and hopeless. In fact, as the Bible describes us, we would still be dead in our sins and trespasses, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. By nature, we are all children of wrath, children of the devil, John eight forty four, beloved, beloved, if you haven't looked to the Lord Jesus Christ to the righteousness that he freely offers, the righteousness that is necessary for eternal life. If you have not believed upon him, upon his perfect person, upon his perfect obedience, active and passive, all the way up to Calvary's cross. If you haven't trusted in his victorious resurrection from the dead and his ascension to the right hand of God, the father, if you haven't turned to him, if you haven't cast yourself completely on the mercy and the righteousness that is found in the gospel of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, if you haven't turned from your sins, renounced your sins, forsaken your sins, cast them behind your back, friends, I would encourage you to do so today. The reality is we have to deal with the doctrine of total depravity. If you haven't, friends, I would encourage you this morning, look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Find the righteousness that is needed for every single one of us who is corrupt and unable to please God upon our own standing. Now, while the Bible is explicit and clear concerning the doctrine of total depravity, there are others who still dissent to this biblical truth And so I wanna analyze some common objections of total depravity. This third heading that I would give you, some common objections of total depravity. A first common objection that I would present to you is this, the doctrine of total depravity is incompatible with moral obligation. You will see people argue this way in resources and sermons that you listen to and resources that you read. Now this argument, this objection asserts that because God has imposed moral obligations upon man, obligations of obedience, then mankind must have some capacity. He must have some ability to rise up to the standard and fulfill these moral requirements placed upon man. In other words, this argument asserts that mankind cannot be justly held responsible by God for failing to obtain the moral obligations placed upon man if mankind is truly depraved. However, the scriptures are replete with evidence that discusses man's inability and yet God holding the sinner accountable. Consider a brief example with me. John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Well, what about Matthew eleven twenty eight? 28? Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Are these contradictory statements? You see, in John six forty four, we see the inability of man to come unless the father who sent the Lord Jesus Christ in his messianic mission draws him to himself. And yet still the responsibility of the sinner is to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, to renounce all goodness in yourself, to assert and to understand your moral bankruptcy and to cast yourself upon the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel promises that he provides. A second objection of total depravity that we need to understand and address is this, the external goodness of man contradicts the doctrine of total depravity. This objection asserts that mankind participates and performs good deeds and acts of charity and the like. I like to refer to this as the grandma argument. You know what I'm saying? You know, my grandma is so nice. She's so loving. She wouldn't even hurt a fly and you're telling me that she is depraved? And it's to this question that we must understand what total depravity does not mean. You see, total depravity does not mean that mankind can generate outward actions of external goodness. And total depravity doesn't mean that all mankind is as bad as they possibly could be. You see, all mankind are the beneficiaries of God's common grace. Matthew 5, 45, he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He causes the sun to rise on the righteous and the unrighteous. And every single man has the law of God written upon his heart, Romans 2, 14 through 15. So we're not saying that mankind is as totally bad as they possibly could be. However, as we saw from the prophet Isaiah, even our outward actions, even our best righteous acts are still nothing more than filthy garments because in our unregenerate self, we cannot do anything to please God as they're performed from sinful motives and desires and intentions. Now, while there's other objections that we could deal with, these two are prominent and you will engage in it in your reading. And so you must be prepared to engage with them and stand firm upon the truth of the doctrine of total depravity. A final heading that I want us to consider is the historical affirmations of total depravity. The historical affirmations of total depravity. While the historical affirmations are merely ministerial and subservient to the magisterial authority of the scriptures, the historical affirmations of total depravity bolster our confidence. They reignite our faith that this is not some novelty. This is not some new doctrine that just came into being in the 16th century, but is clearly taught from the pages of scripture and has been clearly taught throughout the annals of church history. Tertullian, a second century church father, nicknamed the father of Latin theology said this concerning total depravity. He said, man in the beginning was beguiled to transgress God's command. And on that account was given over to death and brought it about that the whole race thus infected from Adam's seed became a sharer in and transmitter of this condemnation. Martin Luther affirms the same reality. We'll skip over that for time's sake. But John Calvin says this, he says, all the parts of the soul were possessed by sin. Ever since Adam revolted from the fountain of righteousness, Adam not only brought disaster and ruin upon himself, but he also plunged our nature into destruction. A final historical affirmation that I would present to you comes from the prince of preachers himself, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, when he says this, and I love this, this is, this is the quotable Spurgeon. He says, the fact is that man is a reeking mass of corruption. His whole soul is by nature so debased and so depraved that no description which can be given of him, even by inspired tongues, can fully tell how base and a vile a thing he is. Now, I hope from just this brief treatment that you are convinced from the magisterial authority of the Theopneustas scriptures, the God-breathed scriptures, and the ministerial authority of godly men whom we stand upon their shoulders, that the doctrine of total depravity is a biblically taught and historically affirmed doctrine that serves the purpose of exalting the sovereign glory of God in humbling sinners. So we've looked at, the doctrine of total depravity. Next, I want us to turn to the second of the five pillars of the doctrine of grace and consider the doctrine of unconditional election. Lorraine Bettner, who was a 20th century theologian says this, integrating the doctrines of grace. He says, if the doctrine of total depravity be omitted, the doctrine of unconditional election follows by the most inescapable logic. Now, as we study these, I want to Consider them under the same four headings that we consider total depravity, beginning with a summary definition of unconditional election. Lewis Burkhoff again helpfully summarizes and defines the doctrine of election, stating that election is that eternal act of God whereby he, in his sovereign good pleasure and on account of no foreseen merit in them, chooses a number of men to be the recipients of special grace and eternal salvation. The London Baptist confession of faith affirms this same truth. Again, lots to be unpacked from these definitions, but just notice a few highlights. The doctrine of election is part of the eternal and sovereign decree of God. Meaning that the doctrine of election didn't come into formation in time and space, but was formed, if you will, in the eternal council of the Trinity. Also notice that the basis of the doctrine of election is God's good pleasure and nothing in terms of meritorious work or foreseen faith in the sinner. So with some of that initial groundwork laid, I want us to consider a second heading again along the same lines, the biblical evidence of unconditional election. Let's look at the Old Testament evidence first. We see this same truth of unconditional election taught in the law. Genesis 18, 19 says this, these are the words of the Lord. He says, I have chosen him that is Abraham so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. The Hebrew word for chosen in Genesis 18 is the Hebrew word yada, which literally means to know. And not just to know generically, but to know intimately. Intimately. And this describes the fact that unconditional election is not the cold, impersonal decision of some remote God, but it is the gracious and the loving choice of a personal God. Likewise, Genesis twenty-five twenty-three says this. This is the Lord speaking to Rebecca. He says, two nations are in your womb and two peoples will be separated from your body and one people shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. I can't improve upon the inspired author's commentary in Romans chapter nine, when Paul writes concerning this verse in verses 10 through 13 of Romans chapter nine. Try to pick up some of the key elements of our summary definition in Paul's commentary of this verse. Paul writes this, he says, "'Not only this, but there was Rebekah also, "'when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, Now catch this, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the younger shall serve the older. Deuteronomy 7 is a very similar affirmation of the truth of the doctrine of election. You don't have to turn there, but listen as Deuteronomy 7 says this, this is Moses on the plains of Moab giving this sermon. And he says this, he says, for you are, not, you are a holy people to Yahweh, your God. Yahweh, your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Yahweh did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples for you were in fact the fewest of the peoples. Now we must be clear here as Moses is speaking to the second generation of the sons of Israel on the plains of Moab, he's speaking to them collectively, corporately. But you can see some of those same essential elements of of the doctrine of unconditional election fleshed out in that verse. You see, God chooses a smaller group of people out of a much larger group. In fact, all of the peoples on the face of the earth. And notice that Moses was clear that it was not the numerical strength or the military might of Israel that caused him to choose Israel. But the foundational basis for this election was the sovereign love of Almighty God. Because I loved you. And the same is true in the individual election of a sinner unto salvation. There is nothing meritorious in man that forces or constrains God to choose a certain sinner. But it is all according to the kind intention of his will in his good pleasure and his electing love. Not only the law teaches this reality, but the wisdom le- literature also affirms the truth of unconditional election. The psalmist in Psalm 89.3 says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant. Elsewhere in the Psalms, in Psalm 135, verse four, we read that Yahweh has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. Let's look at the prophets of Israel. The prophets also assume this same reality, the doctrine of election. In Isaiah, chapter 42, verse one, the first of the four servant songs in Isaiah, we see these words, behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So the Messiah, the servant of Jehovah was God's elect one, God's chosen one. Peter echoes this same truth in his first epistle in 1 uh, Peter 1.20 when it says that he, that is the lamb that was just referenced in verse 19 was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Just as Christ was God's chosen one, his elect one as the mediatorial and covenant head, so too those whom he redeems and represents are chosen by God and given to Christ as a love offering in eternity past. The shepherd prophet, or Amos rather, in Amos 3 says, you only have I chosen among the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. Let's fast forward to the New Testament evidence. The New Testament evidence of the doctrine of unconditional election. Beginning in the gospels and in Acts, we read in Matthew 22, verse 14, the end of this parable that the Lord tells. He says, for many are called, few are chosen. Likewise, in Mark 13, 20, in Mark's description and his account of the Olivet Discourse, he says, unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would be saved, but for the sake of the elect. And notice how the Lord describes the elect. He says, the elect, those whom he chose, he shortened the days. John 10, John 15, John 17 are replete with evidence of the doctrine of unconditional election. I would encourage you, if you need something to study in your devotional time this week, go read John chapter 10. Go read John 15, John 17, the good shepherd, the upper room discourse, the great high priestly prayer of our Lord and see this truth fleshed out over and over again. Acts 13, 48 says this, says when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Notice that the scriptures don't say as many that believed were appointed to eternal life, but as many were appointed to eternal life in turn believed. That's what our Lord said in John 10, that passage I encourage you to study. John 10, 26, he's speaking to the unbelieving Jews and he says, you do not believe. Why? Because you're not of my sheep. Not you're not my sheep because you don't believe. No, you don't believe because you're not of my sheep. Speaking on Acts 13:48, FF F. Bruce says, "All who believed were those who had been previously enrolled for eternal life in the records of heaven." What a glorious truth, a glorious reality. But let's take a look at the epistles. 1 Corinthians 1 27 through 28 says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And what does he go on to say in verse 29? He gives the reason for it in verse 29. He says, That no man may boast. And then in verse 30, he says, But you by his doing, are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, sanctification, redemption, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Turn with me if you would in your copy of God's word to Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians chapter one. This text is by far the most comprehensive and clear declaration and affirmation of God's electing decree. Paul writing to the Ephesians writes in verses four through six, beginning to enumerate all of the blessings that we have. He says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. The Greek word for chosen in verse four is eklegomai. It basically means to select or to choose. And notice in verse four, the objects of this selection, the objects of this choosing. Paul writes that he chose us. That is all true, genuine believers, not just the Ephesians believers that Paul is writing to, but all true, genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have been chosen by God. And notice how. God does this choosing. It says he chose us in him. That is Paul's definitive way of signifying union with Christ. You see, in God's mysterious wisdom, in his electing love and grace, he foreknew believers as united to the covenant head, the mediator of the covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice when this choosing took place, this election took place. Paul writes in verse four that it took place before the foundation of the world. Now, this is not saying that in the annals of eternity, just right before creation, that God chose to save a certain number of individuals. But this refers to the eternality of God's electing decree. It's not just this random point right before God said, let there be light, but is a part of the eternal counsel of the Trinity. Look at the purpose and the result. It was that we would be holy and blameless. Again, we see in verse five, he predestined us to adoption. Literally just means predetermined, determined beforehand as sons. And notice the ultimate basis of this electing decree in verse five. It says, according to the kind intention of his will. And in verse six, the ultimate end, the ultimate purpose, the ultimate aim of God's electing decree is all to the praise of his glorious grace. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 echoes the same reality. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, but we should always give thanks to God for you Why? Well, Paul gives the reason in the latter half of verse 13, when he says, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Christian, are you thankful? Do you give thanks to God because not upon anything good in yourself, not because of any foreseen faith that you would have, but in God's mysterious, gracious, sovereign and loving wisdom that he chose you from the beginning for salvation. Are you thankful? Friends, if you're in Christ here today, you really have no grounds for boasting, nothing to be proud in, in and of yourself. And that's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 1. He says that God chose the foolish things of the world to nullify the things that are so that no man may boast in the Lord. He says, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. By his doing. Let us work through some common objections to unconditional election. Again, this is just a brief flyover, a 30,000 foot survey. But these are three prominent objections that we need to address the first one is that the doctrine of election is synonymous with corporate election. So just as the nation of Israel were elected corporately, collectively as God's chosen and special people, some would object and say that in the same way, God chooses a specific class or category of people to choose. However, the language in the text of the New Testament does not give us that prerogative. We saw in Ephesians 1, 4, that God chose us genuine believers. And likewise, Romans 9 is explicit and clear that God chooses individual sinners unto election to salvation. Romans 9, 15 says that I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. The pronoun whom there is in the singular, not in the plural, which signifies that God's election is of individual sinners unto salvation not just corporately, not just collectively, not just that he chose a mass of people, but individual. If you're in Christ, God set his electing love upon you from eternity path. A second objection that we have to deal with is this, and this is the more prominent one, is the doctrine of unconditional election is conditioned upon the foreseen faith of the sinner and or evangelical obedience. This would be more of a conditional election view. You see, this objection asserts that God looks down the corridors of time and he sees those who will accept the free offer of the gospel and place their faith in Christ. And as a result of that, then he elects those that respond to the gospel call in his election. However, I must ask you If that is the case, then who is the determining cause? Who is the determining agent in salvation? It must be almighty man. This puts God as the responsive agent in salvation, making his decree of election dependent upon the sinner. And as Lorraine Bettner well said, he says the divine will is never made dependent on the creaturely will for its determinations. Thirdly, the doctrine of election would bring a charge of injustice against the character of God. I won't go over this, but Paul responds to this in Romans chapter nine, verses 20 through 24. There is no injustice in the character of God. He is the potter, we are the clay. Who are you, O man, to respond to God? Why have you made me this way? I love what Burkoff says. He says, we can only speak of injustice when one party has a claim on the other. If God owed the forgiveness of sin and eternal life to all men, it would be an injustice if he saved only a limited number of them. But the sinner has absolutely no right or claim on the blessings which flow. From divine election, end quote. Let's turn to the historical affirmations of unconditional election. We'll skip over this Augustine quote, but I do want to end our discussion of the historical affirmations with this quote from Lorraine Bettner, Missouri guy, don't you know? And he says this quote in the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination that is absolutely gold. He says this, the marvel of marvels is not that God in his infinite love and justice has not elected all of this guilty race to be saved, but that he has elected any. When we consider on the one hand, what a heinous thing sin is, together with its desert of punishment, and on the other, what holiness, holiness is, together with God's perfect hatred of sin, The marvel is that God could get the consent of his holy nature to save a single sinner. The doctrine of unconditional election is a biblically taught and historically affirmed reality and truth that exalts the sovereign glory of our great God and humbles sinners. So we've looked at total depravity and unconditional election. Next week, Lord willing, we'll discuss the final three. Lord, help us all to get through that. Just so you know, I had 25 pages of written notes and I had to condense it to 10. So be thankful for that. But let me just say, as we conclude this, consider those objectives of this study. You see, we're not just doing this to grow in knowledge. We're doing this so that we would grow in the grace and knowledge, yes, but that we would be stimulated to ascribe greater glory to our great God and that we would be humbled. You see the doctrines of grace emphasize a high view of God, that distinctive that you see up on the wall in the worship center. And friends, let that be the outcome of this study. Would we by God's grace have a more lofty, a more exalted view of who God is, understanding the reality that salvation is of the Lord? Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you for these grand realities and truths. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed them to us through your word and that they are clear as day. Lord, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts this day the truths of these doctrines. And that as we consider the results of this study, the objectives of this study, the desired outcomes of this study, Lord, would you allow us to grow and further grace and knowledge of God, our savior. Would you allow us to be stimulated and compelled to have a higher view of you, God, and to exalt you in your sovereign glory. And Lord, that we would be humbled by the reality that you would save us based upon nothing in and of ourselves, but because of your your kind will and your good pleasure. Would you be exalted, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.